Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. You pray with me. Lord, thank you. You are good and your love endures forever. Open our hearts, open my lips. Lord, you know that uh, you use each, each of us, and I pray you would use me now and open our hearts to your word. Jesus, in your name we ask this. Amen. And let me say, if you're watching online, welcome. We're continuing our series, Journey to the Cross, and today I want to begin with actually a section that is only in Luke, and frankly, it's puzzling. I mean, you read it, commentators are kind of confused about it, and I'm going to come down on where I think it is. Uh, and it's this unique section where Jesus says to the disciples, when I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And, and if you know the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus did do these times where his disciples watched him. And then he sent them out to do what he had done, right? And they, they went out with nothing, and people took care of them. They, they, it was a different culture. Or maybe they didn't have to beg, so it was a different culture. But then he says, but now, if you have a purse, take it. If you also have a bag, uh, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, which is the unique section of Scripture, Right? I mean, if you ask the average person on the street, did Jesus say, go buy a sword? They're like, no. I know, I know the Bible. He never said that. And you're like, well, right? Uh, so this is the interesting part. Uh, but let me continue. He says, it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, it is written about me is uh, reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So, um, interesting section. Is, is this the concept that we're going for here? You know, did Jesus want armed insurrection? You know, some commentators actually say that uh, where you celebrate the Passover, they had the knives that were used to sacrifice the lamb, right? Because, you know, we... We're different. We go to the meat market. We really don't have any idea what, what kind of... What even, you could live your whole life and not know what the animal looks like that you're eating, right, in America. Um, but back then, they, they, could, they would slaughter the lamb. They would do everything that was needed. And they said that they had the, the utensils for the slaughter and the, the cutting up of the meat hanging on the wall. So some say that Peter looked and said, hey, here's two swords. You know, whether or not, I'm not sure, but that's an interesting idea. And yet, when you look at this passage in light of all of Scripture, you have to ask yourself, was, what was Jesus promoting here? Uh, Luke, later on, not much farther in this passage, you have this interesting encounter where he's out of the garden, the soldiers are coming, Peter looks around, sees all the soldiers. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Before Jesus answers, Peter, one of them, we know from other gospels, it's Peter, struck the servant of the high priest. Sounds like a pretty vicious dude. Um, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. 
and he touched his ear and healed him. So I don't know if it was hanging down by skin or if he picked it up off the ground. But Jesus, of course, it was not telling them, I want you to fight for me. So it's interesting. And even as you look at the history of, in Acts, you don't have like, the gospel being promoted with swords, right? And P, uh, Paul, when he talked about wrestling, fighting, so to speak, he said, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he, and then he goes on and says, take on the full armor of God. And when he mentions sword, he says, it's the sword of the spirit. So you don't really have this history of the church being all armed up for, for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel. So what, um, what's going on here? The more I thought about it, the more I thought Jesus is saying, I want the scripture to be fulfilled and it is my will and the Father's will that I do the Father's will. And my, my will and the Father's will is to go to the cross, right? I'm going to follow him. He had already decided that in the garden. I'm going to follow him there. And he says it must be fulfilled. So maybe they needed to be armed in order that they would do the arrest. I'm not really sure, but it seems like Jesus is saying we're going to fulfill this scripture and I'm going to the cross, and God's will is going to be done. That's the way I come down on this. But have you ever thought about your struggle to do God's will? You know, we pray that, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever think you're also praying in my life? Like that my feet go in God's? It's not easy, is it? I struggle to do God's will. And, and I think many times my struggle to do God's will, and possibly your struggle too, is I don't believe that God is good, right? You know, have you ever been offended by somebody and you're having a hard time forgiving? Somehow I'm thinking to myself, I can't be vulnerable, vulnerable again. I have to hold on to my right to be hurt to, to, or even to, to offend back because, because God can't be good and can't be trusted with my well-being. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, somehow I'm not believing the goodness of God. Or maybe there's some illegitimate pleasure that you're going for, and you're, what you're saying is, God is withholding something from me, and I'm going to get that. So I'm not trusting that God is good. I'm, I'm, I'm not trusting that going his way is the best way, that there's stuff to learn going his way, that I'm going to be shaped more to his image. No, I know better than God. See, when I doubt God is good, I struggle with thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and I'm now walking by faith. The scripture goes on and says, and he came out as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And I started thinking, as was his custom. So Jesus was a regular person in prayer. I, I remembered a, a friend of mine who became an atheist or at least a doubter in college, and he said, but you want to know the hardest thing for me? It, it was, I couldn't deny my dad's relationship with Christ because it was his custom to spend time with God. We were away with some friends, and um, a phone call came in, and a prayer request came from the phone call, and uh, I say, let's pray. And Gretchen and I, our custom is when a prayer need happens, we just pray. And, and later on, I thought, I wonder if that's their custom, our friends that we were with. 
right? I wonder if that's a diff- they have a different custom of, of prayer. But our custom is just need happens, just do it on the spot. And, and we have a certain custom of, of prayer, and, and I hope you guys do too. And Jesus, even though he's somebody who you would think, if you're the second person of the Trinity, you probably don't need to pray. But he prayed all the more. I mean, you think about it, before he chose the disciples, he spent all night in prayer. And when he was lost in, uh, and his parents couldn't find him, remember they came to Jerusalem, they, they start leaving, they're like, where's Jesus? You know, and they go back to the temple and he's there and he's like, I must be about my father's business. Like, like Jesus prayed because he wanted to pray. He liked to pray. He liked spending time with his father. There was, there was something about his communion how was your time with prayer? It says, then he came out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we, he withdrew from them a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So he's praying Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Have you guys ever prayed that prayer before? You're like, yes, we just prayed it in the Lord's Prayer. You know, some people are like, don't pray the Lord's Prayer because it's just a rote prayer. And I'm like, well, it's quoting scripture, right? And I need this prayer. You see, I think a lot of times newer believers, they, they can do it on their own. And they're like, I, I, I don't have that much, like they just got God and they're going for him and stuff. But I think the longer you walk with Jesus, the more humble you become. I like what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He said, we cannot, in that sense, discover our failure to keep God's law except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be in the back of our minds the idea that if we try harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it's not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads to the vital moment at which we turn to God and say, you must do this, I can't. And that's when we're ready to say, lead me out of temptation, deliver me from evil, right? Wake up every day and say, Lord, I might not have any plans for walking into something, but I sure do know that I'm a sheep that needs a shepherd. And I'll check out dangerous situations as if they're not dangerous at all. I need to be led and delivered today. It takes humility to admit that every day. Lord, lead us and deliver us. He he goes on and he prays, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So earlier I said it was the the Father's will and Jesus' will to go to the cross. But he struggled with uniting his will with the Father's will, wasn't it? He's like, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do, but I would prefer not to drink this cup. And then appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. This is the only time in all the Gospels that you get the angel appearance here. It's kind of fascinating because 
God's hearing his prayer. He's sending this angel to be with him to, I would hope, comfort him. And yet, in the next section, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Why did he sweat blood? I mean, sometimes we think he sweat blood because the cross is horrible. I mean, being betrayed by his friend, having a kangaroo court, having to be whipped, beaten, carry his cross, spit on, mocked, crucified, stabbed, right? I mean, that is a horrible death. But is that enough to make you sweat blood? Most of us might say yes. I think there was one thing that was the heaviest weight that he had to carry on the cross, and I believe it's when his father rejected him. I mean, here he is, the God, the God who loves to pray, the one who's intimate with the Father, the one who's one with the Father, and then he hears, you hear him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this, this cup is a cup of judgment, right? L look at what the Old Testament, we don't know much about cups. You know, Betty's sipping on something right now coffee or whatever, but she's not praying like, Lord, take this cup from me, right? This cup is just a blessing of caffeine to her body, right? And, and yet for Jesus, the cup represented something powerful. In the Old Testament, you see these different references to a cup. Jeremiah, God said to Jeremiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of my wrath. And make all nations to whom I send you drink from it. And they will drink and stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword that I will send among them. You have these references of this judgment, this cup that God is, is bringing upon his people. I like what Tim Keller says uh, about this time in Jesus' life. He says, the greatest marriage in history of the world compared to the love of the Father and the Son is like a dewdrop compared to the Pacific Ocean. No lover was ever so one with their spouse. No parent ever so one with their child. No soul ever so one with its body as the Father and the Son. For the Son to even get on the outskirts of the loss of that love to even get a whiff of it meant he began to experience a horror that pushed blood out of his pores. Though he was the son of God, what must it have been like to actually drink the cup if the sight of it, the smell of it, did this to him? That's what was going on in the garden. I mean, this is this powerful picture of Jesus anticipating, smelling, and looking towards the time where his, this intimacy, this oneness that's, that he shared with the Father is going to be severed. It's going to be hell. It's interesting to note that Jesus is called the second Adam, and there's two Adams in Scripture. And, and the first Adam, if you remember the story, God says to him in the garden, Adam, Eve, if you obey me according to the tree of knowledge, you'll get paradise forever. And yet to the second Adam, he says, if you obey me according to the tree, the cross, you will get 
death, destruction, rejection, betrayal, and hell. Infinite experience of hell. And yet, why did he do it? He did it for us. He did it not because he would get glory, because he already had glory with the Father. He did, it, he did it because of us, so that when we, he drank the cup of wrath, so we can drink the cup of blessing. He did it for us. And while they were still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? What a, a moment when Jesus is looking at Judas, the guy who he befriended, the guy who he called. And he's like, a kiss is intimate. A kiss is a kiss of friendship. And here Judas is using it as the sign of who they're to arrest. And Jesus looks at him. And it doesn't say that Judas actually had any emotion at that moment. You know, what do we deduce from this? What do we learn about Judas? First, he was the, the one who betrayed him. But you know what I find fascinating? Every time I consecrate communion, what do we say? What's the tradition that was passed on in the church? Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. Like every time. And the funny thing is, is that you probably know betrayals. I know betrayals. You've experienced some, and you have to forgive. The deeper the betrayal, the deeper the forgiveness. And, and they, they hurt. And Jesus knows betrayal, too. And then it's interesting because when Jesus talked about the betrayal beforehand, it wasn't like Judas was the standout. Oh, we know the guy with his hand in the till. I bet it's going to be Judas. Remember, he says, I'm going to, one of you is going to betray me. And they all go around. Is it I? Right? Bryce is like, was it me? Joe's like, is it me? You know, like they honestly were wondering, am I the one who will betray? So Judas was stealth. He was, uh, he was hidden in his duplicity. And it, it, the Bible would teach us that G Judas used Jesus to get what he wanted. Jesus was a pawn in Judas's play. He's not bringing out the kingdom like I want him to. Well, I'll make it happen. I'll turn him in. I'll sell him out. You know, 30 pieces of silver sounds good to me. And I couldn't help but think that, that many of us are like Judas too. Years ago, there was a song, I think, by a band called Petra, and they had a song called Judas Kiss, you know. And it was how we, many times, are the Judas and any time that we use Jesus, we treat him like Judas. I remember years ago, I was, I think, in fourth grade. My uh, twin brother, uh, the doctor, he had a broken leg, and they went and x-rayed his leg, and there was this big tumor in there. And I remember that when his leg hurt, I used to piggyback him to school. And my parents are like, how has he been walking on this? They're like, Douglas has been piggybacking him to school. Yeah, twins help each other out. And, uh, and so the doctors look at that, that tumor or cyst in his leg, and they said, we need to do surgery. And they said to my dad and my mom, you know, we really think that it's cancerous. And if it's cancerous, we're going to take his leg. 
Um, and if not, we'll take bone from the bone bank, we'll put it in there and you know, put them together. And, and I remember this, it was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Because he came into my bedroom when Dwight was in the hospital and he wept as he told me that Dwight would probably come home without a leg. And it was this powerful moment. I remember we had everybody praying. Like anybody we knew, pray, pray. And you know, I even cleaned up my little life. You know what I'm talking about. You want to be good so somehow God owes you something, right? I got, I've got him in my, you know, if I'm good, God, you owe me. You owe me. So we prayed and we prayed, and guess what? As if you know my brother, he's still walking on the leg. He, he, he has, uh, it was a cyst. It was benign. And they, they fixed him up, and everything was fine, and my life went back to normal, right? Just like Judas. And I can't help but think that that's how we are with God many times. We treat him like a tool that we dig with, and then when we're done digging, we put him away. And he says, I want you to be a tool in, in my hand. Be a, be a tool in my hand. And, and the next thing I see in Judas is that there's this interesting thing because Judas, like, he wanted to betray Jesus, but it says it, early in the chapter, I think it's either verse 2 or 3 of chapter 22, then Satan entered Judas. So if you looked him in the face, you were looking Satan in the face too. I mean, think of that. You know, we talk about demon possession sometimes, and I've seen people's eyes get kind of funky and different thing experiences with people who are possessed by demon, but this guy is Satan-possessed. And the more I thought about this connection between how evil has a plan and it's like going, and Satan is going, I got Jesus, I got it. Yet who's writing the story? I mean, Jesus, God, is still in control even though the evil one is active and is possessing Judas and betraying Jesus and yet God still has a plan. I couldn't help but think that so many times in my life it's so easy to jump to conclusions. Bad things happen, really bad things, horrible things. I don't even know how it could even be part of God's will but these things happen and, and then sometimes we just catastrophize, right? It's... And, and I don't blame anybody for that because really bad things happen in the, in the world. And, and yet the worst thing happened, happened to Jesus, and it turned out for our good. And so sometimes in my heart, <clears throat> I just back up and go, it's horrible, but it's not the end of the story. It's horrible, but it's not the end of the story. I remember my uh, daughter needed, uh, had a bad situation happen with somebody and um, leave those details out, but I might have shown up in a police blotter. And then, um, and then in light of that, there was a, a lawyer being contacted and uh, she was an, is a nurse and she her, lost her job during the pandemic, applied for unemployment. If anybody worked with the, early on, the unemployment uh, website had some issues. And it would say things like, you need to reapply. And she's like, I can't reapply, call this number. I mean, it was crazy. So months later, they send her a letter, oh, you owe us $9,000. She spent hours. <laughs> many hours on the phone with them trying to figure this out. And somebody would be like, yep, it's fixed. 
No, and she even went, she went to unemployment court. And she contacted the lawyer because of this difficult situation. And that lawyer was like, oh, I can, I can take care of this. And you know, Hannah, your situation's so funny. I'm not going to charge you for this. And by the way, I know somebody who works for the, the uh, like, who's a senator, because I used to be connected to that office. Let me get them working on this. And frankly, she was actually contacted by the attorney general's office. Because she's a COVID tester now. What a great story of the COVID tester fighting with unemployment, you know. And, and, um, but because of that difficult situation, she ended up with a lawyer who had the right connections that she ended up with everything being taken care of. And you look at this one difficult situation and go, ugh, and yet this other situation got totally resolved. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And it's so easy to jump to conclusions, but you don't see the end of the story. Satan, Judas, intended it for evil to harm him, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the salvation of many. I know this is all about Joseph, but it's all about Jesus too. And so many times in our lives, we just have to step back and go, Lord, this stinks, but it's not the end of the story. Scripture goes on and says, they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him. For he too is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crows. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he wept bitterly. First, I'm glad I'm not Peter. Can you imagine having your failure just remembered in infamy? You know, right? And then Pastor Doug, you know, and just like writing it out in detail, wept bitterly. You know, you're like, really? You know, but I am so thankful for the leader of the disciples to be a failure because there's hope for me and there's hope for you, isn't there? And what must it have been like? Because, you know, Judas had this eye-to-eye contact. You betray me with a kiss? And here, I don't know if they were marching Jesus by or how close he could be to the beating and the abuse Jesus was taking, but somehow he could make eye contact with him. And what did that do for Peter and his soul as Jesus looked deeply into it? And he just wept. Now, we know the reinstatement and the end of the story and that Jesus prayed for him and that he did return and strengthen the brethren, but here's this failure. And when we fail, oh, 
we feel like, is there any hope for me? This is my yard some years ago. Google gave me that picture. Um, can you see how my front yard tree is not straight? <laughs> so some years ago, I had a lot of these voles in my yard and they were killing the grass and I thought, I know what I'll do, kill all the grass, till it up, uh, reseed it, and I'll have a nice lawn. So I did that, except I went too deep and I cut the roots of my little front tree and I thought, oh, I'll straighten it out later. Well, I could not straighten it. The roots set and my tree is now growing at an angle. It's, it's truly, it's not the best picture, but you can see that little thing next to it is straight and my tree is just growing up over Katie's car there. And uh, it was a fail, right? So the city comes along and they um, are gonna cut the tree down. And I'm like, great, and they're gonna plant a new one. But I say to them, wait, can we just use this one as the tree? My wife's like, you did what? I go, I stopped them, and they cut the tree down, but they let me have just a little sprout. I thought it was kind of cool, you know? I, 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 I didn't totally kill it. We have life coming up. So it grows up, I don't know, year, two years later, and I say to Gretchen, I think our, our tree's gonna bear fruit. No, it's not. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a pear on it. No, there's not. And guess what? We have a pear tree in our front yard now. Now, here's, here's how it works before I give you what the Lord told me about this. So, pear trees are very hardy, and their root systems are very hardy. Ornamental trees aren't. So, they splice an ornamental tree into pear tree roots, and then you get hardy roots, hardy tree, and everything works well, except when you cut the ornamental tree down and let the pear tree grow up. And that's what I did. But here's the point. We have fails, and God will use your failure to bear fruit. And he spoke to me and said, Doug, this is a picture of your life. You may fail, but out of that failure, I can bear fruit. Will you pray with me? Lord, lead us on into fruitful living, being a people who are about your kingdom. Lord, we pray and we would pray again and again, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and on this earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, you drank the cup of wrath so that each of us here could drink from the cup of blessing. And for that, we say thank you. And the more we get that, the more we get your grace, the more you transform us from the inside out. So lead us on in you. Jesus, in your name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.